Why is there such a strong push to get rid of the old rite of the Mass, the old Latin Mass? Why is Pope Francis and many of the high-ranking churchmen he has surrounded himself with bent on stopping out a flourishing community of young people seeking to deepen their faith life with a Mass that's the same one attended by the greatest saints the Church has ever known for over a thousand years? What is this hatred for a form of liturgy or worship that, from an outside perspective, can only be seen as a, perhaps even a neat gimmick to revitalize a failing institution? It's like the return of old Coke, since new Coke was a sales disaster. Well, the answer to this central question is contained in a Latin phrase, lex orandi, lex credendi. The law of prayer is the law of faith, or more loosely translated, how we pray is how we believe. And that is the key to understanding the battle surrounding the Latin Mass. Why are all the liberal prelates stacked up on one side of this debate? Why the Pope, Cardinal Supich, Cardinal Gregory, Cardinal Roach, Cardinal Farrell, Bishop John Stowe, and more? Why are all the faithful Catholic prelates on the other side fighting for the retention of the traditional Latin Mass? Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Sarah, Cardinal Zen, Archbishop Vigano, Bishop Schneider, and more. Well, there are all sorts of reasons, for sure. But I wanted to highlight one reason that perhaps few think about. It's at the heart of all the culture war. All those liberal prelates that I mentioned would all be regarded as heretics in more Catholic times. They oppose the Church's perennial teaching on homosexuality, for starters. They also oppose the teaching against contraception. They fight the Church's encouragement for large families. They waver on the pro-life teachings, for instance, in their glorification of pro-abortion politicians and the insistence on giving them Holy Communion. They are the opposite in these respects from their faithful counterparts, also mentioned previously. So, how does this play out then in terms of the traditional Latin Mass? Well, you'll find that attendees of the old Latin Mass reject all the new-fangled anti-Catholic nouveau theology that these liberal prelates promote. Check out this survey of Latin Mass Catholics compared to mainstream Catholics of the Novus Ordo that we reported on at LifeSite in 2019. The Traditional Latin Mass National Survey carried out by Father Donald Kloster, who celebrated both the Novus Ordo Mass and the Traditional Mass for 20 years, he noticed big differences between the people attending the two different types of Masses. So he decided to do a survey of Latin Mass Catholics to see where they stood on key issues which were common to the surveys of Catholics in the general, in the general public carried out by major pollsters. So, here are a few of the issues he looked at. The approval of contraception. The approval of abortion. The approval of same-sex marriage. And the results of this survey were astounding. Pew, the big national pollster, found that 89% of nominal Catholics or, or of Novus Ordo Catholics approve contraception. That's 89%. You know what the number was among traditional Latin Mass Catholics surveyed? 2%. 89% of Novus Ordo Catholics approve of contraception. 2% among traditional Latin Mass Catholics. That's an unreal difference. Well, let's look at the next category. Pew again, Pew Research found that 51% of Novus Ordo Catholics approve abortion. Among traditional Latin Mass Catholics, it was 1%. Also, Daily Wire found, in, in, in a massive survey that they did, they found that 67% of Novus Ordo Catholics approve of gay marriage. And among traditional Latin Mass Catholics, it was 2%. Those differences are astounding. It is unreal. Go check it out at LifeSite News for the full story. Check out the research, how they did it, everything else. But to me, it is no wonder that liberal prelates in the Church want to stomp out the traditional Latin Mass. And I'm not the only one who sees this. 
You don't even have to be Catholic at all to see this. Perhaps an outside view is actually better to be able to see what's happening within. Take, for instance, this piece from the New York Times, of all places, from last November. Ruth Graham, who covers religion for the Times, wrote a piece called, and I quote, Old Latin Mass finds new American audience despite Pope's disapproval. And here's what she said. She said, the Mass has sparked a sprawling proxy battle in the American church over not just the songs and prayers, but also the future of Catholicism and its role in culture and politics. She added this, and I quote, on one level, the split over the old mass represents a clash of priorities and power struggles in church leadership. In the pews and parishes, it is more complicated. Many Catholics say they are attracted to the, to the mass for spiritual reasons, bolstered by aesthetic and liturgical preferences, rather than by partisanship. So, isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that Really, the lineup of the battle for the Latin Mass between the old traditional Latin Mass, or at least allowance for it, and those wanting to stop it out, stomp it out, fall exactly along the same lines of the moral battle going on in the church. Of course, there's no real battle. The church's moral teachings are unchangeable. Nonetheless, the battle in the church follows exactly that same one. Now, the faithful are fighting for the Latin Mass. And there's lots of fighting going on. We saw beautiful processions um, all over the world to ask the bishops to retain the Latin Mass. We saw in, when they had in, in Rome a celebration of the Latin Mass, uh, a huge number, over a thousand Catholics were there to support the traditional Latin Mass. But I want you to just check out this one thing. When Traditionis Custodis was released, restricting the Latin Mass, there were young people who spoke up. There was this particular young woman who released this heartfelt plea to the bishops to please not stomp out the Latin Mass. You know what? Rather than me talking about it, you have a listen to her. Being able to adore our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, to love Him, and to grow deeper in my faith because of the reverence shown to him was truly like life-changing for me. When Traditiones Custodis was implemented in my diocese, honestly, it was it was heartbreaking for me, um, and it was devastating to my home parish. Truly, from the bottom of my heart, I beg, beg any bishop that is watching this, recognize the suffering that Traditiones Custodis has caused. God bless, and I really hope that it can be restored. So when these old men in mitres are crushing young people like that without the slightest remorse, that is when you know God will act and is, it is the firm sentiment of all the best priests, all the best bishops and cardinals that I know, that the Latin Mass will be restored. And that's also the take of my next guest. Dr. P Peter Kwasniewski is a specialist in liturgy who has written 20 books, including his latest, The Once and Future Roman Rite. This is The John Henry Weston Show. Stay tuned. Hello, LifeSite friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Each round is stamped on the back with an image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, we feature LifeSite's logo, surrounded by brilliant sunbursts and draped with olive branches, and each round commemorates LifeSite's 25 years of pro-life, pro-family reporting in America, Canada, and beyond. These one troy ounce rounds are 0.999 pure silver, and LifeSite has just under 10,000 in stock. They're beautiful, historic, and forever enshrining the most important American pro-life victory of a generation. This first edition LifeSite Silver Round is the perfect gift for yourself or anyone you love that collects precious metals and is passionately pro-life. And each purchase helps directly fund LifeSite's pro-life and pro-family mission. 
This is the first precious metals collectible of its kind that is directly supporting LifeSite's worldwide mission that you know, love, and trust. And now it can be yours while limited supplies last. Get your one troy ounce rounds of 99% pure silver today by clicking the first link below and celebrate life with all of us at LifeSite News. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, welcome back to the program. Thank you, John Henry. It's, it's always good to see you. Let's begin as we always do at the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. So, Peter, your brand new book out, The Once and Future Roman Rite, is uh, very timely. Um, let me start with just what's going on in the news right now, because... All over Rome, we're hearing these rumors. And at first, it was just rumors on blogs, and we thought, mm, nah. But then Robert Moynihan came out with a letter that apparently spoke with one of the brothers or, or fathers in one of these traditional orders who sort of seems to suggest, yes, it's true, it's coming out April or May. There will be a massive restriction on the Latin Mass. It's in the form of an apostolic constitution that will basically bar... Uh, the, the Latin Mass from all, uh, you know, regular churches from all parishes and uh, in sort of basically taking Traditionis Custodis, the document, the motu proprio by Pope Francis to its sort of full extension or, or perhaps <laughs> just another step along the way. Love to get your opinion on that to start. Sure. I, I do think that it's it's entirely possible that such a document is in the works um, there are enough converging rumors to suggest that it's at least on somebody's desk or on multiple desks. Um, we definitely know that there is a powerful anti-Latin mass faction uh, working in the Vatican. Uh, Cardinal Roach is 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 the 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 the, the main figure there, uh, but there's a whole host of Sant Anselmians uh, who are kind of pushing this line that the liturgical reform is a necessity, is irreversible, is the best fruit of Vatican II, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they've kind of pinned everything onto the liturgical reform in a way that's very strange. It's ideological um, because, in fact, liturgical changes happen throughout history. There's nothing irreversible in that sense uh, about it. Uh, in fact, if anything's irreversible, it would be the, the normative nature of the tradition that we've received, but we can get into that. That's what my whole book is about. So I do think this document could be in the works. If it comes to pass, if there really is some kind of megaton bomb that's dropped on the Latin mass communities throughout the world, um, I think it's just going to be another one of these uh, occasions where they are going to need to organize better and resist it, just as, as, as we've had to do in the past. The traditional movement in the 1970s was under a cloud of suspicion. It had no it had no backing whatsoever from the Vatican, and yet people persevered, and eventually they got the support they needed from John Paul II, and then more fully from Benedict XVI. So yes, we have a bad pope right now, but we could have a decent pope or even a good pope, you know, in the future who will reverse these not irreversible decisions. <laughs> so let's let's talk a little bit about another recent revelation. Uh, Archbishop Genswein, upon the death of Pope Benedict, released his book. A couple of very interesting things in there. And one is this quote. Uh, this was from the book of uh, Archbishop Genswein and uh, talked about the Pope's reaction to Traditionis Custodis. So when Traditionis Custodis is released, um, Pope Benedict has a reaction. Um, he, uh, then he was flipping through, he says, and he furrowed his brow when, um, it was talked about in, in traditions, or at least in the notes from Pope Francis, that this was the real intention of, uh, Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict. Can you speak to that? Yes. Yes. Uh, in fact, those four pages of Archbishop Genswein's book are fascinating, um, because what they suggest is a chink in the armor of this, this curated image that Pope Benedict was perfectly in accord with Pope Francis. I mean, we know that's not true. We know that wasn't true, even with the release of the book about celibacy in connection with the Amazon Synod and so forth. But, um, but no, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just false. I, I mean, I have to read this passage to you from uh, the interview that Pope Benedict did with uh, Peter Seewald in 2016, it was called uh, Last Testament, is what it was called. Um, 
And uh, Benedict said, I have always said, and even still say, that it was important that something which was previously the most sacred thing in the church to people should not suddenly be completely forbidden. A society that considers now to be forbidden what it once perceived as the central core, that cannot be. The inner identity it has with the other, the past, must remain visible. So for me, it was not about tactical matters and God knows what, but about the inward reconciliation of the church with itself. And then Zewald says, the reauthorization of the Tridentine Mass is often interpreted primarily as a concession to the Society of St. Pius X, which is what Pope Francis asserts. And Benedict responds, this is just absolutely false. That's his direct words. It was important for me that the church is one with herself inwardly with her own past. That was what that that what was previously holy to her is not somehow wrong now. Those quotations are from pages 201 to 202 of the of Last Testament. Um, with John Paul II, too, he talked about legitimate aspirations of the faithful who loved the former liturgical uh, books and, and, and rites. Um, legitimate aspirations are not just what the Lefebvreists had. It's what any Catholic had who missed the old rites or who fell in love with them afterwards, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's another interesting passage in the new book, um, and it goes this way. This is, again, the book by Archbishop Genswein, uh, released right at the death of Pope Benedict. And this, this passage also made a big splash. He says, Benedict in particular felt it was wrong to prohibit the celebration of the Mass in the ancient rite in parochial churches, in other words, in parish churches, as it is always dangerous to corner a group of faithful so as to make them feel persecuted and to inspire in them a sense of having to safeguard their identity at all costs in the face of the enemy. If you can speak to that. Yes, of course. Well, the... There's an organization in France called Pay Liturgique, Liturgical Peace, uh, or Pax Liturgica. They sometimes use the Latin version of that. And their thesis is Pope Benedict is the Pope of Liturgical Peace because he wanted to allow groups of Catholics with legitimate aspirations to worship in the traditional manner, if that's what nourishes their faith, as it indeed does, as we can see in, in many communities around the world. Um, and, you know, it was a similar motivation with the Anglican ordinariates, right? These, these former Anglicans, they love their own Anglican tradition. If we can purge it of what's erroneous in it, but let them keep what's beautiful and worthy, then let them have it, right? So Benedict is truly a pope of, of pluralism in a good sense. Um, and he also was a pope who understood that if, if mistakes were made in the liturgical reform, and there were big mistakes made, he admits that, over the course of 40 years, and many other people who look into it admit the same thing. He believed that the best approach was to kind of let people work it out on the ground level. Let priests celebrate the old rites. Let that influence how they celebrate the new rites. Let the faithful, in a sense, vote with their feet. You know, it, it's it's kind of the principle of, if God is for it, who are we to be against it, right? Um, and so this th there is this idea of very much of co- of fraternal and charitable coexistence that Benedict was aspiring to in order to depolarize and, and um, let's say, remove some of the rancor from the, the whole question of the liturgical uh, debates or war, some people refer them to. And so I, you know, I edited a collection of about 70 pieces from cardinals all the way down to lay people called From Benedict's Peace to Francis's War, right? <laughs> Uh, and the reason I called it that is that that's exactly what we're seeing. He is the one in the name of unity who is antagonizing these a whole group of Catholics, a significant minority of Catholics. It's not that's not going to end well. I mean, history shows that when you antagonize minorities, it does not end well. <laughs> so there's an interesting thing there, because in a way you could say both JP two and Benedict tried to do a feint to both sides. It was like, yeah, there's so many people, particularly old people, who are kind of attached to this. And perhaps he had some of these warring cardinals who, who really had a problem with the Latin Mass say, okay, fine, we'll, we'll give it to them. Hopefully they'll die off sooner than later. But what seems to have 
like gotten the, gotten them crazy is that it caught on. It caught on among the young people. And all of a sudden, there was a massive resurgence. And it seems like they went crazy. It was like, oh my gosh, they're not just dying off. Exactly. Now, now let's, I mean, let's, it's interesting. You know, there was a piece written recently, a really puerile piece um, that appeared at a, a website called Where Peter Is, um, in, in which the author, he was, he was arguing essentially that the liturgy is the Pope's toy. So he can do whatever he wants with it. He can break it, smash it, replace it, ad libitum, it doesn't matter, which of course is a profoundly false view and can be shown to be false from church history and from theology. But he, he made the claim that Benedict's gamble or assumption in Sumorum Pontificum is that only a tiny minority of people would ever go to the Latin Mass, and therefore it would never become popular. And, and he draws the conclusion that if it became popular, then it would have to be stopped, which is the most absurd conclusion to think of, right? It's like if people, you know, uh, eagerly and fervently go to Mass, there, there must be something wrong. We better stop that, right? Um, so, but but this is false. This is a false claim because, uh, well, actually, Benedict, the problem, one of the problems with Pope Benedict XVI is that he isn't always 100% consistent in his thinking about things. So he does say two things that are kind of intention. One of them is, he says, uh, I forget if this is, I think this is in the letter to the bishops that accompanied Sumorum Pontificum. He says there, that, that, that uh, attending the old rite presupposes a liturgical formation and a knowledge of Latin that is not frequently to be met with. Uh, and that's kind of implying that, okay, this is a very minority affair. But he says in the same letter, that young people too are discovering this form and finding in it an encounter with the mystery of the Holy Eucharist particularly suited to them. Young people, he says, right? Well, if you see young people being attracted to that, uh, and perhaps they're not classical Latin scholars or whatever, right? Then it shows that there's a, an attractive force in the traditional rite itself. That is drawing people. And if it draws young people, it's drawing the future. If it's drawing young people, it's drawing families with children, right? Which we see happening. So I think that Benedict, surely Benedict was in a perfect position to know, especially as in Rome for so many decades, he met with Michael Davies, he met with, with all kinds of groups of pilgrims coming to Rome uh, because of the Latin mass. He knew that it was attractive. He knew that it was growing, right? And he still released Sumorum Pontificum. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now that we've dealt with the sort of newsy aspects, let, let's go back to some basics. Um, first of all, in your book, you say uh, tradition is the ultimate norm. What does that mean? And just if you, even if you can bring it back even a little bit more, for people who are new to this, what even is the Latin Mass? Why are people attached to it? What does it have to do with tradition? Isn't the mass the mass? Yes, yes, right. There's a lot built into those questions. Or, uh, but um, I mean, basically, Catholicism is a religion of tradition. I mean, we just have to start with that. What is tradition? What is in Greek parodosis is the word traditio in Latin. It means that which is handed down from age to age, from the apostles to their successors, uh, from the church of one century to the church of the next century. Um, so we have, and 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 of course. At the heart of that tradition is tradition with a capital T, that is what God revealed through Christ to the apostles, but was not written down in the form of scripture, right? That's what we, we refer to this as oral tradition. It's part of divine revelation. But then there's a whole sort of accumulation of traditions, ecclesiastical traditions, we call them, around that core, that divine and apostolic core. Um, and these ecclesiastical traditions include many, many things. They include uh, liturgical chant, like Gregorian or Byzantine chant. They include church architecture, how we build our churches, you know, that we have tabernacles and altars in churches. You know, these are these are things that are modeled after divine revelation, but how we do them and how we practice them from century to century is, is built up as a matter of customs, right? I mean, there are multiple ways of doing things, but you have to do it one way. And the, what you see when you study history is that as the church you might say, learns to celebrate the Mass with certain customs, these customs are taken very seriously by all who come afterwards, and, and the ones who come afterwards cling to those customs. They, they hold on to them as precious heirlooms, as an inheritance, right? Why? Because it might have been a saintly bishop 
who gave you part of the Eucharistic prayer. You know, perhaps it wasn't, you know, it wasn't fully written out to begin with, but some saintly bishop added a certain section to it. And, you know, in, and, and then people said, well, we're not going to drop this. Saint so-and-so added this part, right? Uh, and so in a way, the liturgy grows up slowly, gradually, like an organic process. It's not, it's a human process. It's an artistic process, but it is like the slow growth of a forest, right? Uh, where there's seeds or seeds are planted and they grow up to maturity, to fruition. And then people treasure that and they take pride in it and they don't want to deviate from it. This is just the, the Catholic attitude, right? And so, in fact, in the history of liturgy, there is no decisive break. There's no point at which uh, a pope says, okay, we need to appoint a committee and the committee is going to evaluate everything that we've done before and is going to sift between the things they want to keep and the things they don't want to keep and basically redesign the whole thing from the ground up. That's that's never happened before. Uh, in, in some sense, you might even say that couldn't happen prior to modern times. It's just the modern mentality is very kind of technological and constructivist. And, you know, people think we can build a better mousetrap. You know, we can build a better liturgy just like we can build a better world, you know. So I think this, you know, the importance of tradition is that it shows us the norm to follow. It shows us the footsteps that we should follow in, that God has in his providence uh, appointed for us, right? Um, it's part really of the Holy Spirit's guidance of the church, I think we should say. Um, and so there is something very disturbing about a wholesale revolution in the forms of worship, which is exactly what happened in the 1960s and 70s. You know, you ask, well, why are people attached to the traditional Latin mass? I mean, I think the simplest, there, there are multiple reasons people are attached to it, but when they go to it, I think they recognize, even if they're not academics, even if they haven't read about the subject, they recognize a sort of awesomeness that comes with authentic grandeur, that comes with, with something that has developed over 2,000 years, right? It, it's, it comes, you know, the, the traditional Latin liturgy is somehow monumental. It's, it, it forces its objective reality upon you. And there are things of it that you immediately understand, the, some of the symbolism, the beauty of it, the so-called smells and bells, but other things are mystifying and completely daunting, and they make you feel small and humble, right? And I think that's the way we should feel when we go into divine worship, right? Uh, so I, I think what we experience there is, is, I like to use this word authenticity, right? Um, and I think that when you when you get deeply into the traditional rites, all of them, not just the mass, but baptism and confirmation and marriage and, and all of these different rites, and then you can and then you contrast them with the Novus Ordo versions of those things, Paul VI's version versions of those things, you you start to get the sense of really like some committee wrote this new version. It it it's kind of clunky and it seems to be agenda driven and it's 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 just it's awkward and it seems to be created to prompt people to a certain kind of participation, which, you know, is not as deep a kind of participation as you get with the old rites. So then they, they do a lot of talk about a continuity. Is there a continuity between the old rite of the mass and the new rite? No, no, there's not. I mean, there's, there is what I would call superficial, there's some superficial continuity that is possible and actual what I mean is, if, if you take a 30,000-foot view of the old Roman rite and the rite of, of Paul VI, you can see certain continuities, right? It begins with, or it has the sign of the cross somewhere near the beginning, and there's a penitential rite, and there are some readings and a psalm, and then you have an offertory, and then you have the Eucharistic prayer, right? So, and communion. So, the, if you take a 30,000-foot view, of course there are parallels, but then again, those things exist in every liturgical rite across the face of the earth. All the, you know, the dozens of, of Eastern rites and so forth, they all follow basically that pattern. So really it's when you dive into the details that you see the lack of continuity, the real rupture. So for instance, um, that there's only ever been one Eucharistic prayer or anaphora, namely the Roman canon in, in the Western tradition. Uh, and then suddenly there are there are many Eucharistic prayers that the priest can choose from ad libitum, um, including some that were put together under very suspicious circumstances uh, and with faulty scholarship 
behind them. Um, if you don't mind delving yeah. into that a little bit, what, what do you sure. mean by that? Well, so, so in, in the West from the fourth century, the fourth century is when the liturgy shifted seemingly from Greek to Latin. So there was a big shift um, in language. Uh, it, it wasn't so much, though, because Latin was the vernacular and they wanted to put something in the vernacular because the Latin of the liturgy is actually a rather sophisticated, culturally elevated, uh, artistically refined and rather archaic and difficult Latin, in fact, is not the Latin that was spoken in the in the marketplace. Um, and the reason for that is that by the fourth century, the aristocracy and the clergy, they were Latin speaking rather than Greek speaking. And so and Latin had finally become had developed a sort of sacral vocabulary, thanks to translations of scripture into Latin, that made it possible to have an elevated and dignified liturgy in Latin. That wasn't possible prior. So in, in, a, in a sort of ironic way, it wasn't that it was Latin spoken commonly that turned the liturgy into Latin. It's that Latin had developed sufficiently in refinement, Christian Latin, that the liturgy could be put into an appropriate high register of Latin, right? So it's, it's almost the contrary of, of the way people talk about the Latinization of the liturgy. But from that point, all the way to the 1960s, the liturgy of the Catholic Church in all of its forms in the West was conducted in Latin, in every in the Ambrosian Rite, the Mozarabic Rite, in the Gallican Rites, in the Roman Rite itself, all over the place in the West, it was in Latin. Um, so right there, there's a huge rupture, right, from going from, from Latin, exclusively in Latin, to a, a sort of babel of vernacular languages with all the problems that the translations have brought in, mistranslations, translating pro multis as for all rather than for many, you know, my blood shed for you and for many. Um, so that's that's one big rupture right there. But the other point I was making is during all of those centuries of Latin liturgy, there was one Eucharistic prayer, the Roman canon. That's it. <laughs> and uh, and that prayer is as ancient as it gets. I mean, it was already traditional by the time Pope St. Gregory the Great was reigning in the end of the 6th century. Um, and there was never any other one until the late 1960s when several new Eucharistic prayers were created for the sake of variety. That's what the reformers said. We need more variety, uh, you know. And, uh, and, and then they added still more after that, you know, prayers for children, prayers for reconciliation, whatever it might be. Um, and so now when you get the Novus Ordo altar missile, it's got a whole bunch of Eucharistic president. That is utterly, utterly foreign to the entire Western tradition. Just a quick note before we return. If you would like to stay up to date on LifeSite's coverage of the latest life, family, and culture news, subscribe to one of our many newsletters by going to lifesitenews.com slash subscribe. And if you'd like to help us bring our truth-telling coverage to millions around the world, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation at give.lifesitenews.com. And now, back to the video. So... What are the problems then with the new Eucharistic prayers? Do you see any actual problems with them? Yes. Well, let's put it this way. Anabali Bunyini, who was the architect of the liturgical reform, the, the main secretary, the kind of the one who was who operated the clearinghouse for all of the different ideas and papers and, and votes and so forth, he said he wrote a giant book, huge book, all about the liturgical reform. It's an incredible resource. And you know what? The publisher, Liturgical Press, has allowed it to stay out of print because it's too dangerous. They don't want people to get hold of this book. You know, if you go on the used book market, it costs hundreds of dollars because it's 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 now become a rare book. It needs to be republished somehow, but I'm, I'm sure they'll never do that because it's so damning. Um, but anyway, he documents in detail what they did and, and what their ideas were. And, and he says, we need more variety uh, in, in Eucharistic prayers. And so when we write the new ones, they ought to be different from the old one. In other words, not just, not just a new way of saying the same thing, but saying different things or having different emphases is what he wanted. Uh, and, and one of those key shifts is in the language of sacrifice, right? The language, the, the mass, the Holy mass as the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as representing that and renewing it for us and giving us access to the grace of that sacrifice, that once for all sacrifice. That language is very strong in the Roman canon. It, it's, it permeates it, right? Uh, it's, it's muted in the new Eucharistic prayers. It's not absent completely. That would be false to say. Sometimes people say that it's gone. No, it's not gone, but it's very minimal 
you know, it's it's in passing, you might say, uh, maybe once mentioned, right? Um, and so it's definitely not going to leave the same impression on the priest or on the people as they hear these Eucharistic prayers. And the new ones have become by far more popular because they're shorter. You know, the Roman canon is quite long. It was, it was although it might have been said aloud at a certain point, very quickly it came to be said quietly, sotto voce, as when you go to a Latin mass, you don't hear the priest saying the canon, although you can follow along with it in a hand missile. Um, and so, in fact, when it's said out loud, it's 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 a long thing to read out loud. And most priests think, well, this is, you know, this is kind of tedious. So, so let's just do the short one, you know, or the shorter one. Um, so, yeah, the language of sacrifice, the language of typology is very much lacking in the new prayers. What I mean is in the Roman canon, the priest mentions Abel and Abraham and Melchizedek and all these sacrifices in the history of salvation that paved the way for the one supreme sacrifice of Christ. So it's it's also kind of permeated with a Jewish temple sacrificial feel as well, which really emphasizes the unity of salvation history and the fact that Christ is the redeemer of all, including the Jews and all men, all pagans too, right? That's that's nowhere in the new Eucharistic prayers. So there are, there are so many, I mean, in, in one of the chapters of my book, the Once a Future Roman Rite is all about the Roman canon and all of these wonderful features that it has. One of the things that I've noticed that's quite different is where in the Novus Ordo Rite, the, the modern rite of the Mass, we talk about the priest proclaims, uh, not us proclaim the mystery of faith, and then they say this little prayer. But that's very different from the old rite, if you can explain that. Exactly. And there's a chapter in my book just on this question, on what happened to the mystery of faith. Um, so this phrase, mysterium fidei, is, it's a very mysterious phrase. None of the liturgical historians know where it came from. It's not in any of the New Testament narratives of the Last Supper, but it's there in every manuscript we have of the Roman canon. And where is it? It's located in the middle of the prayer by which the priest consecrates, or the words by which the priest consecrates the precious blood. So he he, he says, Hic est edem calic sanguinem meum novit eternum testamentum mysterium fidei. And then he goes on, right? So it's, it's planted mysteriously in the middle of this prayer of consecration, as if to draw attention to the fact that this is the awesome mystery of, of salvation, that what we're doing here is at the core of our Catholic faith, right? Um, and in the, you know, what Bunini said and the other liturgical reformers on the on the Concilium, the Committee for Reform, they said this is a strange thing. It's not found in any of the New Testament um, accounts. They were kind of thinking like Protestants, like it has to be found in the in the Scriptures, or else we shouldn't do it. And so we should remove this phrase. But but then Paul VI objected. He said, no, 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 we, we don't want to remove this phrase altogether. So then the solution, the compromise, was to turn it into the occasion for an acclamation from the congregation, right? So they said, well, if we say it after the consecration, then it can be like an, an, an invitation for the people to make uh, a certain act of faith. Um, so already right there, they're just kind of playing around with with these elements. I mean, they're they're, they're just ripping something from its historic context and put making you know repurposing it as we would say. And then uh, as as Bacci and Ottaviani objected all the way in you know back in 1969, the memorial acclamation introduces a kind of confusion because what the people say in response to Mysterium Fidei is you know. Um, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will well, come again. Yes, exactly. In other words, they, 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 they're not so much acknowledging the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist as Christ came and he will come again. And so there's a sort of confusion of different levels of presence. What are we talking about here? That's not, that wasn't the original meaning of Mysterium Fidei at all. So, I mean, to, to go into more detail would be getting too deep in the weeds, but the interested reader can, can find it in, in my chapter. Absolutely. I think it, it's very significant to switch the meaning uh, from what I think for most Catholics who have even basic understandings of the faith, the mystery of faith, this central belief that I think tons of um, even followers of Jesus walked away for the very reason, you know, that he said, this is my body, this is my blood, and they walked away. Believers in him. 
they, they walked away saying, hey, this is too weird. How can this guy give us his flesh to eat? That, for everybody, is the mystery of faith. I mean, from any kind of normal understanding, the mystery of faith is consubstantiation, the changing of this bread and water into Jesus' own body and blood, really living. Yes, but yes, then, trans, I think you meant to say transubstantiation. Tra oh, excuse um, me, sorry, yeah, yes. transubstantiation, absolutely. Yes, of, of the of the bread and wine, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in fact, we could think of it this way, right? The central mysteries of the Christian faith are the Blessed Trinity, which we can only know by divine revelation, um, and the incarnation of the Word, which again, we can only know by divine revelation. We can make arguments of fittingness, or we can make certain analogies, but we can only know these things for sure because God tells them to us. And then, uh, following from that, is the mystery of the church as the mystical body of Christ and the mystery of the Holy Eucharist as the real body of Christ that causes the mystical body of Christ. And all of those things are linked together. And in fact, uh, it's, it's, it just is a fact that the traditional mass emphasizes all of those mysteries much, much more. Um, I, I didn't talk about this so much in this particular book, but in an earlier book um, called Resurgent in the Mist of Crisis, I talked about how much the, the, the Trinity has been removed from the Novus Ordo. I mean, that sounds shocking. Like, how can that possibly be true? Well, I documented in detail. It's the, the Holy Trinity is mentioned much, much more and doxologized, praised much, much more in the old rite than in the new rite. Um, and yet some people have the temerity to say, oh, you know, the faith, the, 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 the Catholic faith in the Trinity was revitalized by the Novus Ordo. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> they haven't even looked at the evidence, right? And so now we, we see the results, right? How, what, how much do Catholics know about the Trinity? If they go to the Latin Mass, for most of the Sundays of the year, they, they get this Trinitarian preface that lays out the whole Catholic doctrine of the, of the Trinity, I mean, even if you're only half awake, you're going to get something from that by hearing it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. That's that's used only once a year in the Novus Ordo. It's used dozens of times a year in the traditional mass, right? Um, and then similarly, Catholics, the surveys show that even Catholics who go to mass regularly, the Novus Ordo, don't believe in the real presence. Well, why did that happen? It happened both because the liturgy doesn't talk about it as much and because the priests and the people don't behave towards the Eucharist as if they believed that it was really the body and blood of Christ, right? And so this is also part of, of my argument about rupture is that, you know, ways that we paid reverence to the Eucharist throughout the whole of church history, and we still do in the traditional rite, were stripped away from the Novus Ordo. Well, should we be surprised at the results that we're seeing? Yeah. If anything... That is one of the most startling changes. The, the change to not face our Lord, uh, the priest not facing our Lord. Uh, in fact, the priest with his back to the tabernacle, if the, if the tabernacle is still front and center or in the church at all. But then the reception of Holy Communion uh, standing on the hand or just taken out of the hand of the priest. It's... And, it's funny to hear from non-Catholics testify to say, if I really believed that that was Jesus, I would come up crawling on my hands and knees and my forehead to the ground. So that really is a, a startling change um, and something that... Um, actually, can you tell us something about the, the change there and why that got made? But also notice that uh, just this week in the, in the um, catechists and women lectors installation in, in the Vatican, you see every single one of them receiving standing and on the head. Um, yes. Yeah, if you could tell us Well, that. look, I mean, this pontificate, Pope Francis is the Pope of rupture, right? I mean, he, he wants to drive the wedge as deeply as possible between pre-conciliar and post-conciliar. I mean, he's, he's the anti-Benedict. He does everything that Benedict wanted Francis wants to do the opposite. Um, I mean, once you see that, it's actually really easy to understand everything he says and everything he does. Um, so what did Benedict XVI do? He insisted on at the Vatican at, when, that at papal masses that people should kneel to receive communion on the tongue. He didn't, he, he, he was, 
this perhaps is a weakness. I think in many ways it is a weakness. He didn't want to impose rules on the whole church and say, okay, everybody, people now should kneel and receive on the tongue. But he wanted to lead by example. Here's what the Pope does at his own liturgy, and, and therefore it's a model, like a shining model that you should imitate. Well, you know, the, the regime at the Vatican now disagrees with that model, and they want to have it, they want to go back to the 60s or the 70s. You know, that's their slogan, back to the 70s, it seems to me. Um, so, I mean, getting to your question about how all this happened, this is what we have to understand, that in the, in the period right before and during and right after the Second Vatican Council, um, the, the, the theologians in Europe, the European theologians, especially from Central and Northern Europe, um, had very progressive ideas, uh, some of which they, they, they got from, from twisting passages from church fathers. Some of it was modernism, uh, you know, revived, warmed over. Um, but wherever they got their ideas from, they wanted to de-emphasize what the church had been doing for a thousand years or more. And, and create new points of emphasis. So one of their new points of emphasis was to say it, that the body of Christ is primarily the people who are gathered together. We are the body of Christ, as St. Paul says. And so we don't want to put too much emphasis on the Eucharist as the body of Christ because it'll make people neglect the fact that they are members of the body of Christ. Well, that's a, that's a half truth. I mean, it is true. We are members of the body of Christ. But we are made to be members of the body of Christ by Christ himself. And it's because he's really present in the Eucharist that we get to be his members, right? It's it, There's a priority here. And even Paul VI said that very clearly in his encyclical Mysterium Fidei. He said that Christ is present in many ways, but he is present in a singularly real and profound way in the Eucharist. That is That has primacy, right? That's the traditional Catholic way of looking at it. So modern theologians, it's not that they have simply erroneous ideas, although sometimes they do. But they, they want to take a truth, a partial truth, and magnify it to such an extent that it elbows out all kinds of other truths. And so on the basis of this idea that we are the body of Christ, then they wanted to sort of de-emphasize some of the what they considered excessive signs of reverence and humility and submission towards the Eucharist, right? Because that's not really in accord with our Christian dignity. That's what they argued. It's absurd. It's, a, it's an absurd argument, but that's what they were saying in the 60s. Um, so even though Paul VI asked the bishops of the world, as you know, should we keep the custom of receiving on the tongue? And nearly all of them said yes. Nevertheless, he caved into the pressure and allowed a loophole. If Episcopal conferences wanted to ask for permission for communion in the hand or, or for a rescript for the Vatican basically to give an exception to the norm, which is to receive on the tongue, then the, the conferences could do so. And of course, one conference after another asked for that. Um, because they were all driven by people like Rembert Weekland, you know, um, and you know, and th and that's how we ended up with the situation, the situation that we have today. Whereas when you go to a Latin mass, people still preserve these beautiful age-old customs, kneeling before our Lord and Savior and receiving Him on the tongue from the from the from the the anointed hand of the priest, as is right and fitting. Yeah, it, it's a beautiful act that. Even, even that alone, even for those folks who really understand no Latin, they know they go to a Latin mass, a traditional mass, and they know they're at the crucifixion. At the crucifixion, you wouldn't also understand what went on, but you'd know our Lord is there and he's being crucified for me. When they go up and receive our Lord, it's just stunning because you, you have a real presentation of you receiving God, unworthy as you are. Um, it is, it's the most touching thing. And to watch, uh, people receiving so worthily, it's, it's fun. It does a lot of things on a psychological level that assist in the belief in the true presence. No, I agree. It's, it's, it's one of the most beautiful aspects of the traditional mass. And it's not, and of course, I just want to say this for fairness, because people are always looking for ways to attack us, you know, oh, there's a loop, there, there's a, there's a, there's a gap in your argument. So yes, it is possible to, for everyone to receive kneeling at a communion rail and on the tongue at the Novus Ordo Mass. That is not forbidden. It's never been forbidden. Nobody ever said you had to tear out the communion rails or that you, but it's harder to do that at the Novus Ordo because there is this contrary pressure of 
there's a kind of peer pressure that comes from most people doing things differently, and especially from the USCCB saying the normal way to receive is standing, but they don't say in your hand, but standing is the norm in the, in the United States. Um, and so already for a priest to recommend that people kneel and for people to kneel is, is a kind of awkward situation because now you're going against what the USCCB has said. So it's difficult to get the right things to happen in the Novus Ordo. That's one of the one of the great problems with the so-called reform of the reform. You know, lots of good ideas, uh, but but extreme difficulties in implementing them. Now, one of the things with this upcoming or perhaps upcoming um, apostolic constitution, they seem to be taking sort of steps towards really outlawing the traditional mass. Can that be done? And um, if it is said, what does that mean? And what should traditional priests do and, and, and the faithful do? Yes. Yes. So my simple answer to that is absolutely not. It is not possible for a pope to outlaw a traditional liturgical rite of the church, one that was received and approved by the church of every age prior to him. That's not possible. Why? Because that is like blowing up the bridge that connects us to our entire heritage and tradition. That is not a Catholic mentality. That cannot be a Catholic mentality. And moreover, and this is perhaps the most um, powerful argument, authority exists for the sake of the common good. That is the only justification for the existence of an authority. When you have a community of people, they have a certain good or they enjoy certain goods together and the authority is placed over them to ensure that they have access to those goods, right? And that they're protected from those who are trying to undermine those goods. Well, the spiritual good of the faithful is very much wrapped up in the liturgical rites, the, the frequenting of the sacraments and adherence to tradition. These things are part of the church's common good. And it's a fact that there are many Catholics today who are nourished in a particularly deep way by the traditional rites themselves. In other words, it's not indifferent whether you go to this rite or that rite or the other rite. Otherwise, we could just send everybody to the Byzantine rite or tell all the Byzantine Catholics that they should go to the Roman rite. No, we. there's a certain, the church recognizes that people are fed in different ways. And so there are converts, there are reverts, there are large families, all of whom are deeply attached to the traditional rites that feed them in a way that the Novus Ordo does not do. Therefore, to attack those traditional rites is to directly to attack the common good of the church, right? And no authority can do that. So we have to be very clear about these principles. As for priests, priests are in a very difficult situation because they owe a certain obedience to their bishops. They made a promise to that effect. But it's not the, the vow of obedience that's made by a religious uh, when a religious makes a vow of obedience, he says to his superior, tell, you tell me to do anything, and as long as it's not sinful, I will do it. Or you tell me not to do something, and as long as it's not sinful, I will not do it. Uh, uh, but the priest isn't in the same situation. If a bishop says to the priest, I want you to go to Rome and study canon law, the priest can actually say, no thanks, I don't want to do that. He's not under a vow of obedience in the same way. He's a collaborator with the bishop. So the priest has rights and he has duties. And he's not just a sort of pawn that the bishop can move around however he wants to. Um, and so sometimes people conflate religious obedience with priestly obedience, and that's a big mistake. They, they say, look at what Padre Pio did. Okay, well, Padre Pio was a capuchin. He had a religious vow of obedience. It's a different thing. Um, but what should priests do? Well, they need to recognize that if they give in to this tyranny, this, this tyranny against the common good, against the rights of the faithful, even against the good of their own priesthood, um, they will be actually supporting an evil in the church. They will be part of the abusive system and not part of the solution to it. And so I think it's, I mean, I'm very, very strong about this point when I, when I speak to priests, either personally or through correspondence. Don't be another wolf among the shepherds. You need to be a shepherd. You need to keep shepherding your people, even if that means going underground, it means, you know, having mass in a barn the way that the priests had to do after the French Revolution. Whatever it takes, keep the tradition going, right? There is no one on earth who can stop you from doing that. And I talk about this a little bit more, by the way, in my book, uh, my booklet, True Obedience. I give lots more arguments and references there. So I have one sort of insider baseball question, and it's very strange to me. It always has been. Um, there was a bull called, quote, Primum 
that was very straightforward about the traditional Latin mass, how it could be said for all eternity, without no one could abrogate it at all. But it was then changed in 1962, and now the whole conversation is about the 1962 mass, not the one that was uh, with quo primum. Can you unpack that for us? I, I've always yes. been confused by that. Sure. So I think people make they, there are mistakes that are easy to make when you're dealing with legal documents uh, in, in, in the church's legal tradition. So there are aspects of quo primum, which are, which are, you might say, uh, what's the word I want? There are timeless aspects to it, and there are time-bound or changeable aspects to it. Inasmuch as you're talking about the details of the liturgy, like having a, a feast, adding a feast for a new saint, who is canonized after 1570, or adding a new preface as the Vatican did just a few years ago. They added to the missal, you know, a special preface, for example, for Corpus Christi or for Mass in honor of the Eucharist. Um, when it comes to small changes like that, obviously Pius V wasn't saying you can never add a new feast or you can never add a new preface. Right? Um, so the, the subsequent editions of his own missal that came out made small changes like that. However, they did not make a revolutionary change. They didn't rupture the Missal of Pius V, uh, rupture from it. And that's important because Pius V didn't create a Missal, as some people say, ignorantly, but he simply codified and, as it were, canonized the pre-existing Missal of the Church of Rome that went back centuries before that. I mean, you can find a Missal almost identical to Pius V's Missal in the time of Innocent III, who was Pope centuries before Pius V. Right, so Pius V was simply codifying the Roman tradition, having purged it of certain errors that had crept in, as they do. I mean, especially in when you're copying manuscripts or when you have typography in its early phases, there are going to be mistakes that creep in. So there were some corrections made, but they were very minor compared to what was, you know, what was done under Paul VI. Really insignificant compared to that. Um, so what 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 quo primum is really enshrining and recognizing is not Pius V's product, but the tradition of the Church of Rome as a gold standard. And this is where you get to a key point. Inasmuch as the liturgy is a confession of faith, it's the lex orandi that corresponds to and expresses the lex credendi, so the law of praying that tells us what we believe as Catholics. To that extent, the Missal of Pius V is a confession, a dogmatic confession of the Catholic faith against the errors of the Protestants who were condemned uh, at the Council of Trent. And so the Missal of Pius V isn't just a, a, a sort of a set of ceremonies or rituals that has no dogmatic implications. No, it's a form of the profession of the Catholic faith, especially against the errors of the Protestants. Um, and so to that extent, to cancel out the missile of Pius V is actually an anti-dogmatic statement. It's, it's a statement against the faith. You can't do that. That's part of the reason why uh, Pius V is right to say this, this mass can always be used, just like the Catholic faith can always be professed through it, right? Um, so I, I, I guess what I'm saying is in as much as the Tridentine mass encapsulates the tradition of Rome and encapsulates the Catholic faith, to that extent, it is not changeable and it is not uh, abrogatable, right? Um, and this is, in fact, what Benedict XVI said. I mean, I know this is a famous quote, but I just have to share it with you because he says it so explicitly. He says, what earlier generations held as sacred remains sacred and great for us, too, and it cannot, cannot be all of a sudden entirely forbidden or even considered harmful, right? So Benedict's claim is not, well, I'm as a disciplinary measure, I'm letting people have access to this missile, but we could abolish it if we wanted to. It's a theological claim that it cannot be abolished, right? Um, that's 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 what Quo Primum is talking about. Fascinating. Uh, Peter, where can people get your book? Um, and um, and then I'd love to hear your closing thoughts. Sure. Yes. Well, here's 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 what the cover looks like. Um, you can see it there. Uh, this book was published by Tan uh, Publishers. I'm very, I'm very proud to have a book with Tan, the the, the good old publisher of Michael Davies back in the day, um, uh, who's a hero of mine and an inspiration. 
Uh, but anyway, you can get it from directly from Tan if you want to avoid Amazon, but you can also get it from Amazon and the other online um, distributors. And as, as far as closing thoughts are concerned, um, you know, I think that the tradition of the church is so powerful, so beautiful, so true, so holy um, that it will, it can, it cannot be extinguished. The, the Vatican can fulminate, they can condemn, they can abolish, they can do whatever they want, but it, they can't actually quench a movement that involves millions of faithful Catholics, thousands of priests and religious. They will fail. This unjust attack will fail. And thanks be to God for that. Amen to that. Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, John Henry. God bless you, and God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.